Welcome to the Empire Builders Podcast, teaching business owners the not-so-secret techniques that took famous businesses from mom-and-pop to major brands. Stephen Semple is a marketing consultant, story collector, and storyteller. I'm Stephen's sidekick and business partner, Dave Young. Before we get into today's episode, a word from our sponsor, which is, well, it's us. But we're highlighting ads we've written and produced for our clients. So here's one of those. Best part of working at Tapper's Jewelry is being close to family. I'm Mark Tapper, and my uncle Stephen Tapper is an amazing jewelry designer. But he's not the only artist in the family. He married one as well. My Aunt Patty is a painter and sculptor, and her motto is, live a colorful life. When they got engaged, my uncle couldn't afford the diamond he wanted, so he chose a blue-green tourmaline, and she loved it. Their commitment to each other is inspiring. Fast forward a few years, and for their anniversary, Uncle Stephen gives her the diamond he wished he could have all those years ago. It's impressive. Even had the tourmaline redesigned as a right-hand ring. Now Uncle Stephen gets to celebrate everyone's anniversary with every ring he makes. Sometimes it's perfect the first time around. Sometimes he helps people get it right after a little time has passed. I'm grateful he's part of our team and yours. Your story. Discover your next anniversary ring at Tappers Jewelry and Tappers.com. Welcome back to the Empire Builders Podcast. Stephen, when you told me today's topic, I've heard of them. I've eaten there. I don't know a whole lot. And I know that their flagship is the Butter Burger. We're talking about Culver's. It's a it's a fast food chain, but the Butter Burger, it was always interesting to me the first few years that I drove by one and saw that it's, you know, on their on their big sign it's like home of the Butter Burger and you think, well, geez, that can't be that can't be healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take two. <laughs> oh, that's right. Load me up. <laughs> so, but I have eaten there and, you know, it's it's They've got some kind of unique things, but let's hear the story. Well, and here's the interesting thing. I had never eaten there. I had never heard of it until I heard an interview where George Culver, you know, the founder of Culver Restaurant. And as I was listening to the interview and him talking about certain things, I got I got really interested in the story and started to dig into it and do some research and went, wow, this is, this is really interesting because they started... In 1984, in Sauk City, Wisconsin, George and, and Lee Culver, and this is, you know, a city of just over 3,000 people in the middle of the state, not a big location to launch wow. an empire from. And today they have over 900 locations, and they're one of the most profitable per-store franchises in the United States. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, they do like $3 billion in sales, and there's 25,000 employees in this restaurant chain. And the other part that I found that was so different, you know, when we take a look at restaurant franchises, which they are, normally they're built on this really narrow list of items. It's a small offering. Yeah. But they have over 50 items on their menu, like all sorts of things. You know, like they'll have, you know, pork tenderloin. And they have this crazy wide menu item, which immediately... My brain goes to, they can't be profitable. And it turns out, no, they're actually highly profitable, which really flies in the face of conventional wisdom for a chain restaurant. It's really quite remarkable. It makes you wonder how, how they do it. And I'm, I'm itching to know. 
Yeah, so they started, in the, as I said, mid-1980s in Sauk City, Wisconsin. And at the time, his goal was he wanted to have one successful restaurant. It was never about building a chain. And when they started in this small town, they were right across the street from other fast food places. Mm-hmm. And as you said, today, they're famous for Butterburger and frozen custard. Those are their two big items that they're really known for. They do a thing with their ice cream called the cement mixer or something like that. It's like a a DQ blizzard. It's got ingredients churned up into the ice cream or the the yogurt. I don't know if that's what they're famous for, but it's it's kind of an interesting name. That is an interesting (laughs) name. I love it. So when George started Culver's, it was not his first restaurant experience. George's dad was a dairy inspector and in 1961 wanted to get out of that and his dad bought an A&W drive-in. Now at this Mm. time A&Ws were no sit-down, they were all car hopped in the 1960s. Mm, And this was really the height of the car hop trend. And at this point George is 11 years old and like many family businesses he worked at the A&W. The whole family were expected to work there. And at the time A&W was a seasonal business. So basically open in the spring, closed on Labor Day. So in the off season, the parents would go get another job. Then in 1968, they sell the restaurant and they buy a farm kitchen resort. So basically 24 cottages, mini golf, all this other stuff, plus a dining room. And they also live there. And everything in the restaurant was made from scratch and George did all sorts of jobs. And he really talked about how he loved the place. And he went on to study biology in university. And when he graduated, his dad had health problems. And George was asked to take over the family business. And George said no. He wanted to go his own path. Okay. So his sister introduces him to a friend that helps him get a job at McDonald's. So he gets a job as a manager trainee at McDonald's in Madison, Wisconsin. And eventually he becomes a manager. And after four years, he wants to have his own place. So he goes back to Sauk City, and he wants to buy the A&W back. And at this point, he's newly married to Lee, and they approach George's parents, and they buy the A&W back that they had sold. So how George says it, you know, approached his dad, and his dad was all enthusiastic. Let's do this! And his mom was, I'm not so sure, because, you know, there's a reason why we sold this business in the first place. Now, at this point, what they knew is they would need to build a new one because they wanted to have seating, etc., all this other stuff. And so the parents, the sister joined, and it did well. It did really well. And it also allowed them to, they did close for six weeks and did a vacation, all this other stuff. They had $200,000 invested in it, and somebody came along and offered to buy it for $350,000. What year was this when they rebuilt it? When they rebuilt it, it was 1972, I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mid-70s comes along, they sell it for $350,000, and they hold the paper. So they made a profit, but not enough to live on. So they took the profit and decided to buy this other restaurant called the Ritz Supper Club, which they changed to the Culver Ritz Supper Club. Supper clubs are pretty popular in Wisconsin, and ran again as a family, did quite well, had it for two years. Then here's the Mm -hmm. problem. The people who bought the A&W from them were failing. So they got a call. And they're carrying the paper. And they're carrying the paper. They got a call. Can you please take this back? And you know, he actually wanted it back for some reason. So he couldn't wait to get his hands on it. So he took it back, but pulled it away from A&W, decided to become independent, and he called it Culver's Restaurant. And what they decided to focus on was frozen custard and 
butter burgers. Now, frozen custard is soft serve ice cream basically made with an egg yolk. It's more dense than ice cream, like you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And the butter burger, which I had no idea what a butter burger was. A butter burger is a bun that is toasted and buttered, and the burger is pressed on the grill. Today, it's what we would call a smash burger. Okay. And these custard machines were expensive. Like, it cost like $19,000 for a custard machine. They decide to sell the supper club, and in fact, they sold the supper club to the people who they had bought the farm thing from. Anyway, it's just like small town. Crazy. This is small how it town. works. So it's July eighteenth, nineteen eighty four, is when they open Culver's, and it is slow. Like he describes it as being deadly slow. No one knew what custard was, frozen custard was, and no one mm-hmm. knew what the butter burger was. And across the street was a Hardee's, which was at the time the fastest growing burger chain in the United States. Dairy Queen is down the street, and this is the year the blizzard was invented and launched. So they're busy. So all around them, places are busy, and they had no marketing funds. People could only discover the butter burger and frozen custard from having it. And it's also premium priced. They had this large menu of pork loin, cod fillets, bone-in chicken. And midway through the first year, they thought, we're not going to make it. We're just not going to make it. Somehow they managed to stumble through the first year, and the second year was when the business started to work. Word got out. Stay tuned. We're going to wrap up this story and tell you how to apply this lesson to your business right after this. Hey, Rick, how's it going? Okay, fine. That doesn't sound okay. Well, what is it? My business. What about it? You probably wouldn't understand. Hit me. Well, you know I love it. But? My revenues have flatlined, and I'm not growing anymore. Okay. Well... It's frustrating and depressing, and it was so much better when we were growing. Oh, I bet it was. And nothing I've tried has moved the needle. What about talking to Steven? Steven who? You know, the guy that hosts this podcast. Really? You think he could help? I hear he runs a paid-for-performance marketing agency. I wonder how that works. Why don't you ask him? How? Book one of those free starter sessions on the podcast website. I don't know. You can't say you've tried everything. If you don't try this. You're right. I might even learn something. I bet you do. Thanks, man. Let's go grab a bite. Yeah, sounds good. Right after you call Steven. Okay, okay. Book your starter session on this podcast website. Just visit theempirebuilderspodcast.com and click on Get Started. Let's pick up our story where we left off, and trust me, you haven't missed a thing. In fact, by the third year, people are starting to come from a long ways away. And in the third year, they're starting to make money. Supplier approached them and said, you guys should look at doing a drive-through. And they really resisted doing drive-through because they had car hop, they had dine-in, and they looked at drive-through as just being, this is just adding too much. And they were told, look, if you do drive-through, this will take you to over a million bucks in this restaurant. Eventually he relented and did it. And guess what? Took the business to over a million dollars out of the one restaurant. That's impressive. That is impressive. 3,000. Yeah. So four years in, they decide the franchise. They got it set up, the franchise. They didn't promote it. They had a family approach them and said, hey, we would like the franchise with you. And they only did it for a year. The family you bought only did it for a year and then withdrew from the franchise. It was a failure. And what George decided after that, he was was not going to franchise again. A few years later, 1990, he decided to give franchising another go. What he learned, and I think this is a really important lesson learned. It's amazing how many people approach us with the idea of franchising. And what he learned is that you really do need to put together a formal training program if you're going to be in the franchising business. Mm -hmm. It's not just, hey, just do this. And today, it's a 17-week program. 
And this also lets you get to know the franchisee and it helps you build culture. So over the next couple of years, they open 14 franchises. But here's the other thing that people don't realize about franchises. You know, we all think, oh, we do this franchise, we train this franchisee, this is easy, right? There's no work done, they run the thing, you know, because they're entrepreneurs. No, franchises require a tremendous amount of support. They got to 14 and they suddenly realized they did not have the infrastructure in place to handle any more. So what they did is they closed down franchising for a year to get the structure in place to be able to handle more franchisees. I was going to say, we're talking about supply chain things. Like if you want consistency across the franchise, you've got to, in some weird respect, follow even what McDonald's has done, where you build these giant plants to support everything, right? That, that's the kind of thing you're talking about? Or are you talking about a training system, uh, all of it? It's, it's all of it, but there's even another thing. The problem as the franchisee is you're now the mayor in town, and all of your franchisees have an opinion, and you need yeah. to listen to them. Like, so for example, there was one very vocal franchisee who kept pestering George to change the name from Butterburger to Better Burger. No one knows what a Butterburger is. We should just call it Better Burger. I mean, the guy's not wrong. <laughs> well, and George just said, we're not changing the name. Yeah. But the issue is, as CEO of a franchise, your job is to visit locations and act as a cheerleader. And you need others to inspect for compliance. This is a lot of work and you need to have this in place. You know, it's more than just the systems and the supply chain. It is also this emotional support you need to give franchisees and you need to stay on top of them for things to stay compliant. If you want a great example of that, great example of that is watch the Netflix show, The Founder, which is about McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And what you see in the early days of McDonald's, they weren't expecting and people were doing whatever the hell they wanted to do. Yeah. When you stop offering something and you create scarcity, all of a sudden everybody wants it. Yeah. So in that year of him saying no, it actually created more desire for franchises. Like, like they thought, oh, we're going to lose our momentum here. And in fact, the exact opposite happened. You build a waiting list. And this other part of the job as a franchisee is really maintaining mindset. Like he talked a lot in this interview or heard about how mindset's the most important thing. It's the key to the team members. And the only way you can do that is the franchisee has to be out there visiting the restaurants, promoting, talking about the mindset. Like that does yeah. not happen in a vacuum. And you need to build that into your franchising system. So it's, we're now in the 90s and the business takes off but they create a really interesting plan for opening. And what they realized was what they didn't want to do was open up restaurants too close to each other because then you're just cannibalizing. So their whole thought process was, we don't want to have the most franchises. We want to have successful franchises. And so what they realized was they, they found this magic point where they would open a restaurant 50 miles from the last restaurant. Okay. So it's far enough away that you're not cannibalizing, but it's close enough that in that new place, they probably have heard of Culver's. Mm -hmm. So in other words, they didn't need to create this marketing blitz to inform people of the restaurant. It's close enough that there's some people in town who've heard of it. Yeah. And if, if you're 50 miles down a well-traveled highway, right, as opposed to 50 miles in some odd direction that nobody goes, you, you do create that. I don't, I don't know what 
what what the right word is synergy. No, I'm not going to say that word. That's a business buzzword. But yeah. yes, you know about them. Right. And supply chain is also easier because I'm not mm -hmm. all of a sudden going to something that's three states over. And with one exception, this is what they did. And when they broke from that exception, they found it really challenging. So their growth is open the next one just outside of the last one, expanding out in what they call these concentric circles. Now, in 2017, they sold 30% of the business Drorick Capital, who also owns a bunch of their competitors. And for them, really, it was a way to take some money off the table. And when the pandemic broke out, their first thought was, you know, we've got to lay everyone off. But then he reminded himself, people are the key. We need to keep our people. We need to keep yeah. them. And they were real happy at that point that they had the drive through because they were able to pivot hard to the drive through. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they opened a whole pile of restaurants during the pandemic. They opened a mm. ton of restaurants during the pandemic, and they were up 20% over comparable years through the pandemic. As we saw with a lot of takeout restaurants, it really worked for them. But to me, the thing that I found the most interesting in all of this is when you offer something new, if you don't have marketing money to let people know about it, it takes time, even when the offer is great. Like they clearly had a great product when they opened the first restaurant, it took time for that to catch on, which is also why I think they found this opening in concentric circles because yeah. somebody would already know about it. You get the mindset, oh, well, they're legit. They're everywhere, right? They're right. just down the road, right? So they must be, must be good, must be a big deal. And this is what we talk to our customers about is when you've got one location and you're opening a second location, the best thing to do is open that location just down the road. First of all, logistically, it's easier. And secondly, yes, just down the road, you're already known at least a little bit. You're not yeah. completely unknown. There'll be somebody, there'll be a few people in that next town over that know of you. So it becomes easier for that next one to be more successful. But it's also this role of franchising. I hear so often, oh, we're just going to franchise this without this plan of no franchising. Franchising is work. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you do need to have a training program. You do need to have a support system for these franchisees. Just because the person's interested in your business and is entrepreneurial does not ensure success. You really do need to say, I'm going to support these people and have a plan for how that's going to happen. Well, and as a franchisor, because you've built this system, you're really looking for people that are a little different than you. You want people that, are, that have an entrepreneurial spirit, but you don't want innovators great right? point. you want you want people that can follow a plan you almost want you almost want somebody that wants to be their own boss but wants kind of a job where they're their own boss right so yes. operating a franchise is is a, not a whole lot different from a regular job somewhere but you're your own boss you don't have to make all these decisions about what are we going to put on the menu how are we going to hire people how are we going to train people how are we going to market? How are we going to do all these things? Where are we going to locate? No, the franchise, uh, franchisor helps with all of those things. And then you basically follow the plan. So you yes. need people that are good at execution and operation 
you don't want innovators because they're the troublemakers, right? They're the ones that say, hey, let's let's try breakfast burritos. And, and they're like, well, we don't do breakfast burritos. Yeah. <laughs> so some of that is, you know, puts some seeds for innovation, but you don't want that in your rank and file franchisees. There's a guy who I golf with every once in a while and he owns, boy, last time he shared it with me, I think it's five Tim Hortons franchises. Okay. So, uh-huh. you know, he's doing okay. By the way, that's that's a Canadian company for those of you. That... <laughs> yeah. And several of them are very successful. Like very like not only does he own a few, he owns a few that are very successful. And if you ask him what's the key to being a successful franchisee, he'll sit there and say, follow the system. Don't fight it. Yeah. Like follow the system. That's what you do. Follow it, follow it, follow it. As crazy as that sounds, and that is actually where you will have the greatest success. As a franchisee, what you need to do is you can't just say, here's the system. You do need to support them. You do need to be their biggest cheerleader, and you do need to inspect. And train, train, train. And train, train, train. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, cool story. I got to go out and have myself a butter burger now. What are you having for lunch? You know, boy, I wish there was some frozen custard around, but we don't do that up here. (laughs) (laughs) Everything everything else is frozen. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please share us. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a big, fat, juicy five-star rating and review. And if you have any questions about this or any other podcast episode, email to questions at the Empire Builders Podcast dot com.